Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com.au. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. In this episode, we spoke with Chris Gore. Chris is Go Markets CEO, company secretary, and responsible manager for their AFSL license. He's a long-serving staff member at Go Markets and an industry veteran in the forex operations and commentary business, with at least ten years' experience. Chris is most known for showing a level-headed approach to a market that often opts for scuttlebutt. And he's saying, "I just thought." It's too good an opportunity not to get him in for another episode in each season to just get a lay of the land of what's happening at Go Markets and the industry. This was a fascinating episode, as ever, uh, where we spoke about the distribution and intervention bill happening in the industry, applying new laws, consumer risk and leverage, Go Markets update and what the future holds, the recent Australian election and market movements current state of the economy and the global state of affairs as well. If you like the episode, leave a rating on your podcast app or share with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram story, tagging at GoMarkets in the process. Show notes and all previous guests are at gomarkets.com slash podcast. With that being said, let's get into this episode with Chris Gore. Chris, how are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> it's good to have you in. I do enjoy these uh, seasonal chats that we get to have. Yep. Um, I've been carefully slipping those in uh, each time we go we go to planning stage. But um, thanks for coming in again. I, there's a lot that's happened. Yeah, since absolutely. Since we last spoke, um, I don't know where to start. But I, I think the what we we're chatting about before off air was around the major change in the industry around derivatives um so last time we caught up we spoke about this design and distribution bill and i think from my notes i was able to find it uh the changes as what's been going on with the royal commission were ratified into law around april 2019 so in in a nutshell there's been a lot of changes to the way that financial services or products can be distributed I know you're pretty across the derivative side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the notes you gave me was ASIC has essentially flagged OTC derivatives for a possible product intervention. So, what does that mean? Well, if I can just rewind just a little bit. So, there's two parts to this bill that went through in April. Okay. And one of them was the, the design and distribution um, part of it, which is um, a completely useful tool very useful tool. It determines or um, 
or makes the licensee, the Australian Financial Services licensee, accountable to how they advertise and whom they advertise um, or okay. who to they advertise to. So, I mean, it's completely reasonable. Mm. Um, one doesn't want to be advertising a very high-risk product to a, a portion of the community which wouldn't be able to use that high-risk product. But there's also the product intervention powers. Um, this is... Uh, this is quite an, a, a, a powerful tool, I guess, and um, and allows them to uh, to nominate a, a particular product that they may not like, and um, and intervene. So it essentially, could mean ban the product, and I think it also gives them some other powers where they can intervene in a particular um, provider uh, of the product as well. Right. And so, when you say product, do you mean like? Aussie dollar to US dollar contract, or are we talking an entire product like FX? I'm talking an entire product. So, for example, margin foreign exchange or contracts for difference. Wow. Or binary options or something like that. Wow. Um, we've seen this in, uh, in the United Kingdom, of course, and the European region with the, the ban of binary options. Okay. Um, what, are, what are binary options just for those who aren't aware? The binary options are a, are a fast-paced sort of, um, I guess, a betting tool where you, um, where you know, it's an all-or-nothing outcome. Mm. So the risk is limited by the amount that you put down. So it's a very simple way of, of taking a view on on a short-term outcome in the financial markets. Um, so, for example, if uh, you think the Australian dollar is going to be across a certain level in the next half an hour, there's probably a binary option that you can you can actually trade. Okay. Or buy at a certain fixed amount, so say fifty Australian dollars. Yeah, and if the outcome occurs as you expect, you get paid out for that outcome. Okay, depending on the the, the provider, the percentage. You know. Okay, so binary options is is one that was uh, intervened with in the UK. Correct. Yep. What happened with that? They 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 just made it illegal or. Was there saying around licensing? How, how do they? In, what does an intervention look like? I think um, the intervention in the UK just simply meant that financial service services providers in the uh, the UK and in the broader European region could not offer binary options to European citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you take this 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 product which. Has a has a use, I guess, in, in some from a speculative fashion. I'm not sure if they changed the way if they they transferred over to um to more of a betting instrument to be regulated by the gambling commission or something similar over there. Not exactly sure what they did, but but nonetheless, it's uh it is illegal to uh to offer binary options on the ground, and I don't think they just did it because it was a a super risky product. I think that binary options were synonymous with. Um, scams, offshore scams and things like that. So it became a, a simple matter of, okay, let's get rid of it. And that gets rid of one part of the, the, the problem, I guess. Okay. And then there was broader intervention as well with um, Forex and, uh, and CFD offering um, in terms of uh, leverage restrictions and stuff like that. Right, so you couldn't necessarily get 500 to 1 Correct. unless you proved a financial position or they just wouldn't allow them to offer it anymore. 
Yeah, I think you had to become a, or you have to become a, a wholesale provider, a, a wholesale um, trader or professional trader, they, they refer to it, mm-hmm. um, before you can get large sort of leverage. Um, when I say large, um, you know, I mean, even I guess 100 to 1 is, is significant leverage. It's pretty leverage. big. Yeah. Um, in the context of Forex, um, um, I understand that there's some providers around the world, certainly offshore, that are going 1,000 to 1. Which really? is astonishing, yeah. Um, wow, that's that is that's absolutely nuts. nuts. Yeah, <laughs> quite quite right. Um, but so with these these particular laws that have been passed, um, they're quite a, I guess, a, a reasonable or useful instrument for the regulators to be used. Now, I don't think anyone in the industry, anyone legit in the industry, had any real issue with that. I think there was a. Uh, a broad consensus that these tools could be used in a in a positive way. Mm. I think most people are still holding on to that thought, but um, but with the product intervention powers, I think that uh, the recent rhetoric from um, from the regulators has has been that um, that you know OTC derivatives are firmly in their sights. This has very broad implications for the industry and for I guess the investing investing public in Australia. Um, Given that the product type that we have is um, is somewhat, um, in many ways, um, uh, risky, mm-hmm. um, we of course, if we have a look at um, consumer trends though, or or consumer demand, I should say, um, our industry is largely driven by, you know, how popular the product is. Mm. So one might consider that um, if you were to make some significant change here on the ground, that that the investor or consumer would be forced offshore. Um, so, I mean, the way it's going to play out is, is is anyone's guess at this point, but I think it's reasonable to suggest that we'll probably see some sort of consultation from ASIC in the near term. What that consultation looks like, I'm not sure, but mm. um, um, I'll be participating as much as I can. So a consultation is normally where they sit down uh, members of the industry who have licences it's generally a paper. They generally uh, paper they send out and they call for. And the, uh, interestingly, the product intervention powers can only be enacted, I guess, if if, um, if they do actually make this consultation. Okay. And the design and distribution stuff comes through, I think, in two years. Okay. So, so again, these could all be very broadly, um, very positive things and useful tools for ASIC and for the broader industry. Well, to how they apply them, though. Exactly. That's the thing. Yep. And that, that's what I always think about when – when new laws or new powers are given, how would we feel if they were used um, outside of what the social norms consider okay at the mm. time? Like, I totally get what you're saying. Right now, it could be that, look, it's there. It's a tool that can be used against nefarious operators and therefore most major businesses like Go, IG, etc. aren't really going to have many concerns with it and, and if – if anything, it's probably going to be a good thing for, you know, cleaning up others in the industry. Mm-hmm. But I always just think about, well, what if they just start applying that broad swathe to the industry, mm. which they could. Well, yeah, they could. Um, I mean, I'm quite positive on it. And naturally, um, even if they did use them in the worst possible way, um, I'm a big fan. It's exciting times nonetheless. I, I really enjoy getting involved in this sort of stuff. Yeah, you've always really liked this, haven't you? Absolutely. It's yeah. it's um well, I guess it's um 
it really does like when when the going gets tough in this sort of environment it it it, it kind of does charge me from a from a, a regulatory point of view yeah um so i guess um you know uh, some people may not like this type of thing but um and it opens opportunities as well it um it's you know, I'm sure that some doors will close, but some some opportunities will open, and then we'll see probably in the long run a a, um, a better product for the consumer. I don't think that ASIC would necessarily ban the product outright, although it's possible. Um, once you start banning products, it's the it's a slippery slope. It's the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you can ban. Yeah, and I probably should mention one of the the key tests tests for ASIC to apply this product invention power is um, is they look to intervene where there's risk of significant consumer detriment. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how they define that um, because, I mean, you could broadly define risk of con- significant consumer detriment. Um, On anything? Well, I guess so, yeah. I mean, certainly gambling. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. I'm very interested to understand more about it. And um, I'm sure what they may do is uh, is use it as a, the ability to consult with industry more broadly and come to some sort of, um, uh, uh, I guess, a agreement mm-hmm. in terms of uh, leverage rates. And, and I know there has been some initiatives within the industry to do that. Just before we get into the design and distribution bill, I just want to touch on that a bit more. Is this all from the Productivity Commission? Or was it, had this been in the works for, for ages? Or was it the Royal Commission or something else that triggered it? No, I think this came from as far back as 2014. It was this uh, financial services inquiry. Uh-huh. And that was this is one of the recommendations. Right. I, I believe so, from memory. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it was, so it's it, been it, gone on for a while? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Okay. It's, and we had the industry had broad expectations that it would at some point be passed. It took a took a while, and uh, and I think most people kind of just thought, okay, well, let's welcome them um, because it might bring new opportunity. We might see more sustainable leverage rates being offered um, because at the moment, if someone comes out and says, okay, well, I'm going to take the moral high ground and offer only thirty to one leverage, you're squeezed out of the market. Um, yeah, you're done. I mean, I've, I've tried to do that myself in the past by um, lowering leverage to what was considered, a, a, I guess, a, a happy medium. But then what happens is that you become less popular. Yeah, because consumers love leverage. Yeah, so so for, for, for someone like myself, I've, I've always been very interested to seeing some sort of, you know, lowering or standard uh, uh, maximum leverage Um I think it would be good for the industry, but it depends how low you go. Mm-hmm. I guess if you're going extremely low, um, you start pushing people away to offshore jurisdictions where there's no real safety net if things go wrong. Yeah, that's a concern, and that becomes more heightened as the, I guess, the expansion of crypto exchanges providers develops. Like I can see. A Coinbase in years to come or a Binance in years to come offering FX mm. um, or, or looking to get an FX license. Yeah, um, exactly. The design and distribution bill. So you said before about who they advertise to. W- what does this mean? Like does this just mean you can't be marketing or advertising to these this demographic or on these platforms or how does that sort of 
work. Is there any real indication of that? I think they, they refer to it as a target audience. You have to nominate your target audience. So, for example, my target audience would be someone who is um, financially literate, mm-hmm. um, who has a strong knowledge of financial markets, and who understands the concept of leverage and um you know, you, you could keep on going all day. So with that, you would have to look at, okay, well, how can I, how can I advertise to that person? How can I find that person? And um, it would be reasonable to suggest that you wouldn't be advertising at the local, I don't know, rugby league match <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. You, 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 Makes sense. Well, it depends. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not, mm. I'm not into rugby league, but you'd nominate your demographic. Yeah. Um, and I think that's completely reasonable, and I think that's what, um, what most would potentially do. I think that all licensees have this obligation anyway. So this formalises the current obligation, and it's probably going to be able to, um, to, to contain those licensees who don't comply with that obligation. Mm-hmm. So... Um, all in all, a good thing. Yeah, on balance, yeah. I would say um, a positive thing for the industry. Um, I got, again, it won't make any difference if they decide to ban the product. Um, general Go Markets update. Uh, last time we spoke, uh, obviously we spoke about the way that distribution would change over the next few years. I think you've opened, have you opened the office in uh, the Middle East yet? Yeah, we've got a. Um, we've just got our membership um, with the um, Dubai um, Commodities and Gold Exchange, and um, we're located in the DMCC, which is the Dubai Multi uh, Commodity Centre. Okay. And we're going through the process to get our securities license there at the moment, which is going quite well. So yeah, we're we're working hard to get that done. We've just appointed a, a, a talent on the ground, um, uh, a CEO on the ground by the name of Sheriff um, Sanad. Okay. And um, he's over there at the moment running around getting everything sorted. So once we get that open and we can – we're interested in working closely with, um, with the, uh, the DGCX, Demodities Golden uh, Commodities Exchange. Okay. Yeah, DGCX. And because um, uh, they offer um, general um, uh, gold futures and things like that. So we're hoping to be able to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess um, develop different product types and, and the like that we can offer in the MENA region. Okay. And what else do you have planned over the next 12 months? We're about to end the financial year. We're going through um, – we, we've completed an, an – well, we're going through an acquisition of a, of a, um, a European-based company at the moment. So um, that will give us the ability to, uh, to offer – services to um, or solicit services in the European region in the future at the moment we um, we accept things on a, on a re- reverse inquiry basis here in Australia uh-huh. um, so that's been um, taking up a lot of our time we're also looking at other jurisdictions as well which haven't been decided yet yeah it's an interesting thing with the forex industry like because you can't really not many people go into the US do they well, no, because um, the uh, some uh, capital requirements are significant, I believe. Um, but some a lot of people used to have U.S. clients, and then the um, Dodd Frank, Frank Dodd, yeah, yeah, 
came in and that changed everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, it seems that if you're a sort of a multinational in this space, it's it's the UK, Europe, uh, Middle East, North Africa, and maybe um, if you're lucky, you have a China or Hong Kong desk as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And for you guys for years have had um, had an office in China, right? No, we've had a um, uh, some years ago. We've had a, um, a representative office. Essentially, China. It's, you can provide services to China Chinese clients, um, but you have to do it from a from abroad. So you do it from a, a wholly international sort of offering, as opposed to having services on the ground in China. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, how does it, that? That must be weird. Because they they've been very uh, very tight on capital controls mm. in the last two years or so in particular. Well, the issue is not about demand from China; it's about the ability to supply services. Okay. Um, so yeah, there are constraints there. So if you look at some, um, for example, uh, if you've got someone on the ground there um, and they want to fund your account, it, it it's, can be hard. Definitely, mm. it's a it's a real issue. Um, I want to get into global markets, but I think we'll do that after we talk about the local election, which we're having a good gander about downstairs. Yeah. Um, There's, I mean, we've spoken to, I reckon, half the guests that we've had on the podcast so far about this. I don't think many people considered, I don't think many people, myself included, considered that the Liberal Party were going to win. Um, We were chatting about the fact that, you know, I learned recently that the CFMEU ran a campaign in far north Queensland with the LNP. Mm. Um, and, and maybe we're looking at a pivot by the LNP to become the working class party, which is, would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, weird weird in terms of our traditional thinking of the, the LNP, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we, <laughs> there's a lot going on in the economy. You know, we've had the rate cuts. We, uh, there's definitely another rate cut coming. Because it hasn't impacted consumer confidence at all. Mm. Um, we all know about everything that's happened in the the housing space with the loans, bank behaviour, negative equity, etc. How do you see the lay of the land post-election, I guess? Well, what have we seen? We've seen things bubbling away since the election. There's been no material market movements. Obviously, we've seen the rate cuts come through. Mm. Yeah, on your side, have you seen that there hasn't been much movement on anything? I don't know. There's been a fair bit of volatility in the market, um, which is good from a currency perspective, but um, certainly in the last two months. But um, if you really think about it, okay, so it was an upset, but this this wasn't an upset. Like I saw, I heard some ladies say, um, Trump, Brexit, and ScoMo. Oh, like we God. don't put them in the same. <laughs> I don't put them in the same category. I mean, this is the the Liberal Party. What a um, what a claim, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite interesting, but um, but nonetheless, and uh, I don't think that um that it's 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 shocked any sort of life into the economy. I, we still have the broader sort of issues associated with the economy at the moment, and um, which is brought out recently by the uh, the RBA. Um, when they cut rates. And did you notice they didn't mention, well, I think in, in the, the statement, they, there was a small mention of softer housing conditions. Um, but on balance, they, they talked about a low inflation environment. And that was the yeah. catalyst for a rate cut. Yeah. yeah they keep so. talking about this low inflation environment. But 
it, it doesn't change the fact that people aren't spending. Mm. Like I don't, I just don't think this is a. Well, you could take it from a monetary policy or a fiscal policy direction, but the fact is that people don't have as much income mm. as they used to. How, houses are down. Mortgages, are, a lot of have flipped to principal and interest. People are having to pay more towards their house. They don't have as much money to spend and that has kick-on effects. And you can see that in like retail sector. Yeah. The retail sector is the, the clear indicator for me. Like I think last... Just before the election, like retail spending or the retail sector was down like 8% or something. Mm. Like I just saw this chart and the retail sector was just nowhere near anything else. Yeah, well, that's perhaps a product of the low income growth and um, and and falling housing market. And, um, well, we've seen it recover somewhat, which obviously is um, it's quite interesting to see that that, that recovery come about. Um not necessarily because of, uh, of, of the slashing of interest rates, but we know that we've had APRA come recently and take away, a, well, loosen, I guess, the, the, the stress testing criteria that banks need to go through when they're taking on new loans. So generally, people are looking and saying, okay, we probably should step in at this point just to ensure that, the, um, the, that we don't see some sort of... Uh, exponential fall in, in housing prices because that's an interesting point that um, that we don't necessarily see um, when things come off uh, and if there is a big housing issue or a big um, a big fall in housing prices it happens in such a way where um, where it's it's exponential it doesn't happen in a in a nice slow fashion <laughs> um, and I guess that's why we um, we're broadly concerned with the composition of loans that our banks have in terms of uh, interest-only loans and, and things like that. So when you have these interest-only loans and markets do come off, unfortunately, you've got a scenario where people probably, you know, what we saw in the US dating back to uh, uh, the financial crisis, the GFC, we saw people just give up on their loans. Okay. Yeah, they just walked away from the house. They walked away. Okay. That's when you know you've got a problem. Yeah, and I, and I guess tying that back to the election, um, perhaps that was another reason why the uh, the Liberal Party come screaming through at the last minute. Yeah, the, the, one of the things we spoke about in the past few weeks is um, the relation to the state of our economy and how it could be related to Ireland back in two thousand eight nine. Because the thing with the US was that. You're right. It was very, very quick. It was very, very sudden. All of a sudden, they had to bail out the banks yeah. for nearly a trillion dollars. And if you were there on, if you've seen like the movies like The Big Short, if you're there on the ground and you're doing the research, then you would know. But most people couldn't see it coming mm. at all. And I think most major investors like a Howard Marks and Warren Buffett, they all say like in hindsight, you know it's coming, but you don't know which area of the economy. Most of them thought it would happen in student loans. Okay. Um, like that's what one thing that Howard Marks talks about a lot is mm. student loans. They didn't think it was going to be in housing, probably because they weren't aware of what was going on mm. in in that little sector of the what do you call it ninja loans or whatever. Yeah. Um, I I get a more of a sense that this is like Ireland. Like it, we're going to have low growth, real stagnant growth, low inflation. Uh, and just sort of cruising for the next decade. Mm. Unless unless there's a global event 
that happens between the US and China. We'll get into that in a moment. Unless something really triggers that there, we're sort of beholden to to the current state we're in. Yeah. Well, I guess you can draw some similarities, but immediately what I think of when I think of the uh, European debacle or the pig economies, which Ireland was one of them mm. um, at the time. So you've got Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Spain, um, Greece and Spain. And Iceland. And Iceland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Pigs yes, to course. ice. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I thought it was Italy. Island oh, no, no, it is, it is, yeah. yeah. Isom was the, Isom went broke. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the catalyst, I mean, things weren't going great, if I remember, if I could, if I could just crudely sort of <laughs> and broadly try and explain myself. Um, things weren't going great at the time, but we had Lehman's, which is a, a huge catalyst, Yeah. Um, which swept through negatively financial markets across the world. It was such a significant event. I remember um, the day... Lehman's crashed. Yeah, and I, you, you were working in the industry then. Yeah, I was working in the industry, yeah. yeah. It was a horrible, horrible day. Um, certainly from, you know, not, I guess not for, for, for myself. It, it, was, um, it was exciting in some ways. But <laughs> in my sort of era, the SMB, uh, the Swiss National Bank Day, was, was, was awful. Yeah. That was the – Lehman's was up there. <laughs> and I, um, I think that um, that was a, a, a huge catalyst and – before, when we talked about the um, housing prices, I mean, obviously in Ireland, um, housing fell significantly, and a lot of that a lot of that was to do with the the, the you know you've got these you've got these broad issues, and then all of a sudden um, you've got these overextended banks, and things start crashing. It becomes an avalanche. Yeah. Okay, and before you know it, it's gone. Yeah. So I guess it's um I guess there are some similarities that we can draw. If we look at it, I guess um, from an objective point of view, we do have some 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 issues. I guess with uh, interest-only loans. If we did see a broad fall, we'd see um, the, the the advantage that um, that I guess Australia has is that we've got a a single currency, which can cushion the fall somewhat, mm-hmm. um, as it's done in the past. We we see um, broad negative implications to the economy translate that way for our currency as well, which can act as a cushion. But to be fair, in Europe at the time, the whole economy was under arrest, wasn't it? So mm-hmm. I, I can't remember exactly how the euro was um, was was trading at the time. But, um, yeah, there are some broad similarities there. I guess um, what's missing is that, that large catalyst. Um, That's what it is. Mm. There, there's no event I, I can't think of an event locally because the thing is that i've been paying attention to the core logic data and while the market is down it is definitely down like 30 percent in some areas and there are people in negative equity i haven't seen there's no there's, there hasn't been a day where bank stocks are down 20 percent mm. there hasn't been a day where the government has had to get out and start doing speeches saying that they're underwriting the economy, et cetera. Yeah. We just, I can't see where it's going to come from, but as Howard Marks says, you never know. Mm. Do you think that the banks and housing prices can, um, I guess, um, moderate over time? I think so. I think I, I've... The, one thing's for sure. Housing only ever goes down... 
you'll see housing go down 50% in your lifetime, but it only ever goes like that for two or three years. It's, ne- it's not like the stock market where it takes eight years to recover. And there's also the fact that we're still importing massive amounts of people each year. Mm. I think the numbers are like 300,000 or something like that. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe that's, I'm thinking about the UK, but it, it's, it's at least at a very minimum 140,000 coming here, new people every year. That's not people being born. Uh, so I, I just can't see the market really, I don't so know. What, I can't, what you're really saying is it's a well-constructed house of cards. It's exceptionally well-constructed. <laughs> Um, the thing that they're going to have to do, which they're starting to talk about, is things like congestion, is reviewing immigration numbers, is reviewing, you know, how first home buyers can get a house. So, if they can engineer it in a certain way across these different areas, and the goal is to, if they believe the housing market is going down, but they they they're, they're able to put like a floor beneath it, so it sort of flattens for the next five years or so. And that in the long run, that will prevent a massive crash. They look good. But also, it means that they can help people locally in the economy. And over time, housing will come back when the economy is in a better position anyway. Yeah. You know, economy always comes back in eight-year cycles. Mm. Um, I haven't looked at the Ibis World data. That's the company I used to work for where they, they've always shown that the economy will go in those eight-year cycles. I can't remember when the last eight-year cycle was. I think it was the GFC. Mm. And- I'm pretty sure Phil Riven, the chairman, used, said as I was as I was leaving the company that we've passed the most recent eight, the end of the last eight year cycle was actually 2017. But then again, he could be wrong. He could, you know, like we most can, people are. <laughs> most people are, but he he hasn't been wrong for like 70 years. So, oh really? So. Okay. But then again, that could just be survivorship bias. So <laughs> survivorship bias. <laughs> yeah. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah, we might not be taking all the the data points into consideration. Exactly. Now, I want to jump to. Well, maybe I'll put this to you. What would you be doing in the economy if you were if you had the powers of treasurer and governor, RBA governor? What were some of the things that you'd you'd be looking at, or any sort of tools in particular that? that you think could be quite useful? Man, I wish you hadn't have asked me this. <laughs> um, I need some time to research this. <laughs> um, certainly, I think I, I, I enjoy the, the thought of, in terms of um, uh, housing prices and, and things like that and exposure to bank exposures, I quite like the idea of macro to prudential policy where yeah. they're, they're implementing um, sort of like what APRA just got rid of, the you know stress testing of, of whether or not the... Um, the, the mortgage can withstand a, a significant or material increase in interest rates. Mm. Um, that would make perfect sense to me. But once you, you're in this position, you've kind of got to think of it as a how to moderate behaviour, not, not you know, pull the rug out from underneath yeah. investors. Well, it, it, based on what you said, it sounds like it's all about incentives. And going back to the point about the regulations happening to the OTC derivative space, it's it sounds like you favour it being imposed on companies because companies will go wherever they can go and consumers will will not be led like a horse to water, but they will take any opportunity they're given. Mm. You know, if they can get a thousand and one leverage, they'll go for that. Yeah. And I think it's New Zealand who did this pretty well, right? Like they had a property bubble, but they started imposing 
uh, regulations upon their banks yep. to, to take some heat out of the market. And it's done pretty well for them. Lending ratios and things Lending like that. Lending ratios and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think that's in place. That's broadly in place. But, um, you know, it's easy to say, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it really is. It's, it's, it's easy to sit in my armchair and just uh, yeah think of it, ideas. It is. And, um, I mean, but I'm often interested to... to, to see the real conversation behind the scenes so when the the reserve bank gets together and then you know they've had their meeting and the the formalities aside and they sit down and they just talk i wonder what they say yeah and i wonder how many expletives are involved yeah (laughs) (laughs) retail uh yeah i can't see um it's that candid conversation which is going to give us that's what i like yeah imagine a daily vlog from the rba it would never happen. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's happened in the States, hasn't it? You got it has. A, a, a Trump just coming out. <laughs> Tweet, every- tweeting at 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, the, we, we spoke briefly about China before and I mentioned Capital Flight. I've had some interesting chats so far on the podcast. Um, it's always intriguing to see who the sort of China hawks and the US hawks are. And surprise, surprise, it's always people who grow up in that sphere of influence. But... One thing I had with um, V Lung Fan, who we've had on the podcast before, and we did a second episode with him actually yesterday. Okay. And I'm starting to think that we're sort of entering a, co- a new Cold War. Okay. So, like, he, we spoke about the, the trade war, mm-hmm. but underlying that is really a fight for technology that's yep. happening at the moment. And, gotcha. and also capital. Like, capital is leaving Hong Kong in a big way. Mm. Um, I guess I'm just curious as to how you see the global state of affairs have you been paying much attention to the trade war and all that sort of stuff somewhat more so than i think we spoke last time i can't remember if we spoke about currency wars or trade wars but yeah. um, my view at that time was was a lot softer than what it is now it's obviously quite concerning isn't it what's happened and how that's escalated mm. um yeah, it was all over the afr yesterday yeah i'm yeah. not sure how to unpack it to be honest but um if we have a look at what what president trump has done or the U.S. have done is, is essentially, um, if we look at Chinese imports, um, put a tax on them, a tariff of, what, 25%. Mm. And apparently there's even more to come. And if we have a look, I think there's Mexico as well, which are, uh, they're negotiating. But broadly, um, these things are uh, positive for some parts of the economy, the U.S. economy, that is, and, and quite negative for other parts of the U.S. economy. Um, mm. those who are importing goods from jurisdictions or from countries which was previously do um, previously able to do so in a cheap way. So from an econ- economic point, you know, the jury's out. I know we're seeing a little bit, um, um, a bit of a lull in the US economy at the moment. There are mm. some concerns. Some people are saying recession is on the, on the horizon. Um, from a, a China perspective, I, I really don't know how to unpack it because mm. you've got this situation where um, clearly um, China doesn't want to cut off their nose to spite their face no. and withhold things like, you know, uh, their industry, uh, rare earth. Um. The rare earths thing is interesting. So from that perspective, um, I guess it, it, it becomes who's, um, who's got the staying power. Yeah. It really does. And, and I've got a sense that it's the US, to be honest. That have the saying power. Yeah, I just think they have the bigger everything. Mm. Like, here's my view on it. You've got, and V articulated this really well yesterday, 
and this is why he says it's a cold war. We're basically looking at two, an upcoming power and the world superpower fighting for relevance mm. or wanting more relevance. Um, for China, there's clear economic benefits. There's clear just overall benefits in the ways that they're changing things, whether it's the One Belt, One Road initiative to change the world's supply chain to be focused on China yep. um, and to make them uh, better at building high-tech products. So, they export their labor now to Vietnam and Africa and in, and then they they focus on R&D activities in places like Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. Like if you've been to Shenzhen and seen some of the robotics there, then you really get a grasp of how far advanced mm. China is. The, f- the 5G and Huawei thing is another great example. They are so far ahead when it comes to 5G technology than, say, the US and Australia. But it, it is being turned into this sort of, you know, an us versus them situation because the way that China rules and the way that the US rules are two ideologically different perspectives. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of little things going on. Like, have you been been paying attention to to China at all? Uh, sorry, to Hong Kong at all? Yeah. To the extradition bill? Yeah, the extradition bill, um, which is obviously a, a reason why we're seeing capital outflows in yeah. the region. But capital outflows have been happening in Hong Kong for a long time, mm. for the last two, three years. Ever since they started imposing those restrictions in mainland China, you know, just working in the cryptocurrency space, we've seen a lot of OTC brokers signing up, Chinese OTC brokers, and I, I think they're starting to act as local banks. Understood. Yeah. So, they're acting as a conduit between yeah. mainland and- 100%. Mm. And that's what I watched this interview on Real Vision with Kyle Bass recently, and he was talking about- to some of those outflow numbers and where it's going to. And it's mainly going to places like Vancouver, Sydney, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. And it's going to affect us in the long... Like, the thing that's killing me at the moment or frustrating me is the Aussie US dollar. You know, what was it a year or so ago? It was like a dollar ten, a dollar twenty, and now it's like a dollar forty-five, dollar forty-three. And particularly when a lot of our... When, when you run digital companies, a lot of your suppliers are based in US dollars mm. or you've got to pay them based on their conversion rate. Um, it starts to affect you locally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're talking about the US Aussie rate. Sorry, yeah, yeah, US back Aussie. to front. Yeah, um, yeah. Obviously, the 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 Aussie um, the Aussie dollar is broadly um, lower than what it was. Um, like when I was doing a lot of commentary, we've got up to near a dollar ten. Yeah, a dollar ten, and um, that was amazing. Yeah, that, I remember 2012. At one point, it was like a dollar twelve. Mm. When I when I was traveling in Europe, I was able to get like nearly a whole, like it was 88 euro cents mm. um, and something like 70 pence. This is again one of the broad benefits having a free floating currency though. Um, as the, the as various parts of the economy falters, um, perhaps other parts of the economy can step in. So for example, uh, service industry um, can benefit from a lower currency. And, and so, um, so I think it's broadly, um, you know, seeing currency falter or currency um, slide is, is probably a good thing economically for the for the medium term, certainly. Yeah, particularly if you're exporting. Mm. We're just about on time. <laughs> We've already hit about 45 minutes. So, I might just quickly cap off with asking you one of our rapid fire questions that I didn't get to ask you last time. Yeah. 
if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world, where would it be, first of all? You did ask me this last time. Are you sure? Yeah. I feel like I checked these. I'm pretty sure you asked me this last time. And I'm pretty sure I said, I don't know where it would be. <laughs> and um, it would be something for my my girls. I would I would target my um, my kids, my yep. girls, and um, and give them a message. Okay. Only they would understand. A personalised message. Yes. Chris, thanks for coming in. It's been a pleasure having you on as always. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.